Hi, and welcome to the Shameless Podcast. I'm Julia De Laurentiis Johnson, and I'm the Arts Editor at Shameless Magazine, and I'm your host for this podcast. For those new to Shameless, we're a comedian magazine for teens and trans youth, and we're all about social justice and anti-oppression. If you'd like to learn more, check us out at shamelessmag.com. So this is really Shameless Podcast 2.0. We had another one a few years ago, which you can still find on iTunes, and we just felt it was the right time to get going again. It's all a bit of an experiment, which is pretty exciting. But for now, anyway, this podcast will come out soon after each of our print issues and kind of expand on the theme of that issue. We'll use it to bring you stories that we thought would be better in a conversation form or maybe something that we couldn't squeeze into the magazine, but we really wanted to share with you guys. So the theme of this episode, just like that of our latest issue, which is on newsstands right now, is about food. So food. We all need it, but it's far from democratic. What we eat, how often we eat, where we eat, how we prepare it, where we get it, it can be pretty fraught. There's a lot to it. We rounded up some guests who have some pretty interesting things to say about it. I'll introduce you to Pager, proprietor and CEO of Pager's Express Enterprises, an egg delivery service she runs out of her family farm. She started with two chickens, but her flock has really grown since then, and she reckons that she's hand-washed over 60,000 eggs. She's 12, by the way. I'll introduce you to Michelle, who calls herself the Fat Nutritionist. We talk about health, real health, at your real size, and she dispels the myth that fat people can't be healthy and breaks down how some well-intentioned language used to describe fat people in health is just thinly disguised fat phobia. And I'll introduce you to Jana Ray, an Anishinaabe woman who tells me about the pleasure of finally being able to roast manumin, wild rice, with her family and community on a section of Anishinaabe land after a long-held land lease has been lifted. It's going to be a good one. Let's get going. Major France is a pretty successful egg farmer and entrepreneur from Ontario. She wrote an essay for us that's in the current food issue, and I asked her to read it here before our interview. 2002, the beginning. I was born, beating my twin brother out of the starting gate by seven minutes. My twin, my slightly older brother, and I were like three peas in a pod. We did everything together, which is probably what influenced me in becoming a tomboy. I didn't grow up a girly girl. I was rough and tumble, always ready to tackle my brothers. I never owned a Barbie doll, made a conscious decision to rarely wear pink, and rocked boys' underpants because they were cozy. I grew up unique. The only doll I ever owned was a four-foot rubber lizard that I found chained to my Nana's front yard. I carried Lizzie with me everywhere, even though he was bigger than I was. Daycare made me keep him outside as he scared the other children, but I thought he was absolutely beautiful. I never really hung out with the other girls in my class. So the school advised my parents that I should be encouraged to focus on making friends with girls. My parents told them that I should be who I was and that they were not going to change me just to fit in with everyone else's ideas. At four years old, sponsored by Suzuki Canada, I began racing ATVs, all-terrain vehicles, with my brothers. I made it on the championship podium in the provincial mini-tyke 50cc division in 2008 and 2009. From four wheels to two wheels, I spent the next three years racing dirt bikes, 
banging handlebars in a sport dominated by boys. I was awesome. I was not the fastest dirt bike racer, but I was out there, not intimidated by anyone and loving it. When my family moved to rural Ontario in 2010, I had the space to have animals. A farmer made me a roost, uh, gave me a rooster and a hen, which I named Duke and Do. They were free-range around the, the farm and always together. Finding Do's egg was an egg hunt every day. My parents saw how committed and excited I was about owning chickens and took me to a local livestock market. I bought 45 hens and, bought, and brought them home. Then I was facing a conundrum. What do I do with four dozen eggs every day? Thus my business was born, Pagers Express Enterprises. My mom helped me make up flyers advertising personally delivered farm fresh, free range eggs for $2 a dozen. I went door to door around our neighborhood with my brothers, delivering flyers. I chose to serve as a senior's resident since I thought that they had mobility issues and it would be nice for them not to have to go to the grocery store to buy fresh eggs. Since my parents drove past the, the residence twice daily, it was as convenient for me as it would be for them. Soon enough, word of mouth spread and I had many repeat customers. I had to increase my hen population to 100 birds just to keep up with demand. My mornings begin with my birds. Still in my pajamas, I wake up every day and go out to the barn to turn on the lights inside the chicken coop and open the hatch door so they can run and play outside. Some days, they even get to rock out to music when I leave the radio on to keep them company. Who doesn't enjoy a little rock and roll? When I arrive home from school, I feed and water the birds for the upcoming day and collect their eggs. To date, I have, I have hand-washed over 55,500 eggs just with just a hand brush and a large plastic container in the kitchen sink. Once the eggs have air-dried, I put them in the containers and cartons and store them into the refrigerator. My dad's beer fridge quickly became an egg fridge. Soon customers have regular, delivery, have regular deliveries after school on Fridays, and other customers call whenever they need fresh eggs and deliver them the next morning before school. There are some things I wish I had known about the egg business before I got started. First of all, if you want to sell eggs, you need a source of free egg cartons. I put an ad in the local mill asking customers for their old cartons to use in order to keep costs down. I also really wish I had known about how messy a hundred chickens could be. Unfortunately for my brothers, they have to help me muck out the chicken coop. My future dream is to become a bestseller author and someday have one of my stories made into a movie. In 2013, I entered a youth writing contest. I thought it would be fun and a great experience for my, my dream job. My story featured a remarkable hen that outfoxed a fox. After a couple of suspenseful weeks, I got the call saying that I had won. This was the first time I was sure I wanted to be an author. Maybe my future dreams will come true, or maybe they will not. All I know is that I am a force to be reckoned with. I do not run with the herd and choose to, and, and choose to be me. Wherever life takes me, bring it on. That's quite a story. So, you've washed 55,000 eggs? That is a lot eggs by yourself yeah by myself really it's it's a lot it be, to begin with I was like making I had a lot of eggs to wash I had about 30 eggs every day that I would collect at night and then about six o'clock and I'd wash them and wait till them to, for to air dry and then I put them in the cartons. right and how often do you break eggs 
Uh, well, to begin with, a lot of eggs. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was really like, I if the if some dirt didn't come off, it would just break. And yeah, right. I had to get used to that part. But, I guess it's like a hazard of yeah the job. <laughs> you get gentle after a while. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> um, so tell me about your your business. Like you mentioned a little bit about some of the challenges. Were like you wish you'd known how to get. <laughs> a free supply of egg cartons because I suppose that I mean you can't just like shove them into a bag yeah, right? because was... of the aforementioned breaking so yeah. you need um, egg cartons and uh, what else like what else, what else some of the other challenges that you faced with your business well um, some challenges I, f- I faced was actually finding customers that would buy my eggs uh, when I I wasn't made having so much eggs to begin with when I had like one chicken and one rooster but so when I when I had a lot of eggs, it was like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do with all these eggs? <laughs> yeah. So my brother and I went out with flyers, and we started like getting them at an old age home. Mm-hmm. And later that day, they were calling, and right. they're like, oh my gosh, could I please have some of those eggs? And yeah, it was it started off really mellow, and then it went like, oh my gosh, I have like six deliveries every day. And you do it after school? Yeah. Sometimes, it, like, before school, sometimes after, sometimes on weekends. Mm-hmm. And I've noticed that sometimes, like, my, like, because they're older, they, like, move away. So I've had one really good customer that the, she moved in, into the heart of Toronto. Mm-hmm. And because I come here so many, so often, that I actually deliver to her still. Oh, wow. Because she's in, like, a town square, and I really, like like coming and delivering eggs to her because she's so nice oh yeah. what a, how lucky she is <laughs> um um what was I gonna ask you oh uh so how do you so do you like you go door to door and you deliver them yourself right yeah I go to door to door they usually like want two dozen maybe three and some people who don't really like call a lot they go for six dozen but it doesn't really wow. like I've never been doing with all those eggs yeah like <gasps> I have this little um my dad has this uh, beer fridge yeah you that's about that big and um well it gets so jam-packed in there <laughs> right. so I, we started using my regular fridge then we're like okay we have to do something with this mm-hmm. so that's when I started getting delivering them, delivering them so have you been able to make some I mean friends may be a strong word but especially at the old age home like People yeah. that you recognize and, like, you, yeah. you know. Actually, sometimes they don't even order. When I go and deliver to some people, I always have, like, about 12 dozen before. So they're always by their porch talking. They're like, hey, can I please have one, two dozen? Can I have five? You know, that kind cool. of stuff. Good for you. I always, I always make sure I have extras when I deliver. So do you also, other than, than cleaning the eggs and delivering the eggs and so on, like, is there, like, a business side to it? Like, do you have to keep spreadsheets or something or, like, to keep the money Well, actually, organized? my mom has a business. My mom and dad work together, and they have a business down here. Mm-hmm. And they come here very often, so... What's their business about? Um, well, they warehouse, like, um, uh, bar goods, you know, mm-hmm. bar mats, stuff like that. And so I make spreadsheets sometimes, so... And all their names on the list, so it's like Anjana and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And they get five, and it adds up really quickly. Right. So. Okay, so you keep the books, as it were. Like, you keep yeah. records of accounts yeah. and stuff like that, too. Pretty much. I guess that's an important part of running a business, right? Yeah, also, when I started, I was really nervous. So my mom came Why in Why were you nervous? I don't know. I was about 
eight when I started, so I didn't know what to do. And how old are you now? I'm about, I'm almost 13. Okay. <laughs> so. Wow. So I didn't really, my mom came in with me to like the houses and to help me make change. That's why it was $2. Mm-hmm. So it was help, it helped me make change to all of the other, like the, my customers. And it, it helped me talk on the phone more. Oh, right. Because I gave them my phone number and so they'd call. And it last time I, it was so hard. Like when I started, it was really hard to talk on the phone because you didn't know what you're talking about. Right. So finally, it, it started out really well and then ended nicely. So do you feel more comfortable talking on the phone yes, now? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> even, even in non-egg business yeah, related I, conversations. Yeah, <laughs> it's really nice now because I can actually talk on the phone to someone I'm not looking at. Right. Okay. Cool. Um, so, do you have any advice for somebody that might like to start their own business? And something you wish you had known when you started and, you know, like, some challenges that you didn't foresee at the time that you would, could let others know about? Well, if someone wanted to start a business of any kind, I would tell them that if they don't like what they're doing now, they won't enjoy it down the road. Right. Because when I had, um, when I, I got the, two, the one hen and the one rooster. Duke and do, right? Duke and do, okay, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and I really enjoyed, like, finding their eggs and, like, because they were free range. Right. They were free range, so it was it was really nice to go and try to find their eggs, and mm-hmm. and I really enjoyed, and I could see me doing this for a long time. Okay, so you were saying that if you don't enjoy something at the so when you first got Duke and Do, yeah, I really enjoyed getting their eggs, and you know when I found them in the grass, it made me feel, hey, this is really cool. I really want to try this. Like a treasure hunt. Yeah, it was like it was really cool because they weren't colored, but you could they were brown, so they were fun to watch because uh, yeah. they were everywhere. Oh my gosh! Right. And um, when I got them, I I felt like it was really cool because I had like a new responsibility, mm-hmm. like feeding and watering. They can do that themselves, like right. getting food, and right. so it was really nice. But um, yeah, other than that, um, also. <laughs> Also, I wish I had known to set aside like more money for the for the chickens, because once I had to start paying for the egg layers, the chicken food, the water dishes, the hay, and later an incubator when I wanted to expand my flock. Well, it, it, the incubator I I you did I did that after right to get like it was hard because of roosters and I had to get roosters in there. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I wish I had known to do more of that. Right. To, like, save more money to buy, like, more necessities for the chickens. Right. Okay. So, I think that if somebody were... What you're saying is if somebody wanted to open a business, maybe not an egg business, but just generally, you better really like it. Yeah. Like, the thing. And not the the means to an end. Yeah. But, like, the actual thing that you're doing, right? Because you probably do a lot of it. You All these responsibilities, it takes Mm -hmm. up, like, a portion of every single one of your days, right? Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that's that's good advice. So with all of these eggs that you have, um, you must eat a lot of eggs. Yeah, do you? <laughs> I do eat a lot of eggs actually. And the like, my my dad is a big eat, egg eater. So oh, that's good. <laughs> so he made up this recipe. It's called the Tim Special, <laughs> right? And it's really nice. I love it, and it, I usually get it in the morning. But it consists of, like, bread and cheese and ketchup and my big, fat, juicy eggs. Yum. <laughs> and it's really nice. Very good. And my mom usually scrambles eggs and puts, like, cream of 
chicken in it. So that's cream of chicken. Did yeah, you say? Yeah, cream of chicken. What's the cream of chicken? Like in a can. Oh yeah, yeah of course. Cream of broccoli. Right, yeah, right, right. It's right. Really yeah. Awesome. So has it has it expanded like your cooking repertoire? Because have you had to kind of be inventive with all these these eggs? Yeah. Well, we did invent a lot of stuff like the omelets. Right. <laughs> yeah. What is some of like the craziest things you've made with eggs that I maybe actually, you would not make again? <laughs> <laughs> well, my dad once um he was cooking uh shrimp and he used like some eggs in the shrimp oh not your favorite eh no no okay. it was really disgusting and I, my brother got sick oh well that's i did too my well. older brother he would eat anything so okay cautionary tale yeah don't eat that okay cool okay well i think that's all the questions i have for you okay thank you so much thank you There's a line of thinking out there that believes that to be healthy, you need to be thin. Regardless of whether you say sleep enough, you smoke, drink, don't exercise, don't get exactly enough of the right nutrients, have body image issues. If you're thin, the thinking goes, you must be healthy. And if you're bigger, you're not taking care of your health. I'm just worried about your health, you might hear. Hmm. Michelle Allison is the fat nutritionist who works with clients on really understanding what health is and how to get to a friendly place with food and your body. Michelle? When I was about 20 or 21 years old, I went on a diet to try to lose weight. Um, and I did really well. I was sort of the ideal dieter. I did everything very moderately and responsibly. And I lost like 30 pounds, which at the time for my starting weight was a significant amount of weight. Um, and I was kind of the model dieter. The, what happened was, though, that I started to develop sort of disordered eating behaviors and really severe like body image problems. So the thinner I got, the more unhappy I became with how I looked, which was the opposite of what I was trying to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the midst of this dissatisfaction and trying to figure out, like, why isn't this like working? Why isn't it get, getting me to the goal that I had? Um, I read a book that talked about health at every size, and which is the idea that People can pursue health without making it contingent on weight and that people at various sizes can be healthy even without weight loss. Uh, And it really clicked for me and I thought, okay, if I'm looking to feel good about myself and I'm looking to take care of myself and accept myself, maybe I don't need to funnel that through this proxy of weight loss. Maybe I can work on those things directly and actually get somewhere. Right. So, And you say, like, if I'm looking to take care of myself or I'm looking to do good things to my body, like healthy and also accept myself, right? Mm-hmm. That's what you just said. So those seem to be at um, at opposite sides with each other when you think of like dieting, restriction. Yeah, yeah. That's like a rules. And and that is is really fascinating. I mean, most people I imagine have kind of thought about their body image and size and weight and so on. And it's usually um, surrounded by um, like a specter of a shame a little mm-hmm. bit or a lot as opposed to what you do, which is like acceptance and like happiness along with your health. Yeah. That- it's It's been so long that I've been kind of immersed in this philosophy that I sometimes forget that people don't see the ability to change your health and to be good to yourself as coming hand in hand with self-acceptance. I forget right. that those things are often considered completely separate. Right. To me, I totally disagree with that. I think that you have to accept yourself to a certain extent to take care of yourself. You have to like what you're taking care of mm. in order to want to take care of it. Um, yeah, and that's really interesting because 
people often, some of the people that I know, for example, when they come around to the conclusion that they'd like to lose weight, it's often because they've had, they can't take it. Like they don't like themselves. Yeah. Like they've reached a point. A I cannot point, accept this. So I have to do something and it's based sure. on shame or like I've had enough or I've, yeah. I can't take it anymore. And, and you know, um, gyms to me kind of feel like the same. Mm-hmm. They seem like like cathedrals of shame as opposed to like, <laughs> you know, somewhere to like do something good for yourself. Sure. It's because you kind of, there's a little self-hating going on there and yeah. you need to, to funnel yourself into this mold. It's like a forceful re-education. Yeah. I mean, maybe that's a little like dystopian and creepy, but that's, <laughs> that's how it comes across to me. And I always thought it was weird. Like as a kid, I saw my mom especially really flagellating herself. Oh, yeah. She's kind of a chubby, cute, hobbity looking lady <laughs> yeah. and, and a nurse. And so she knows stuff about health. And I would always see her go on these diets. And even as a young child, I knew it had nothing to do with actual health. It right. had to do with like self-punishment. Um, and you have been um, quoted as saying, it does seem safe still to make fun of fat people openly because there's always a ready excuse. I'm just worried about your health. Yes. Can we talk about that? So like what, why is this a false concern? Okay. It's a false concern because, well, first of all, it's unethical to stigmatize people, but it's a false concern because that's not how helping people works. <laughs> you don't stigmatize people because you're concerned about them. Right. That is completely, at, <clears throat> it's diametrically opposed to wanting to help people. So it's obviously a lie. What it is, is an excuse to engage in social dominance behaviors, which is also a very, unfortunately, human thing to do, but it's not a right thing to do. It's a wrong thing to do and we shouldn't do it. <laughs> that's right yeah it seems to like it seems to be the moral high ground position shuffling off what it what it really is which is a sense of disgust yes absolutely but it sounds like oh but i'm just are you yes it's a good it's a good cover it's right it's just a cover for what people want to engage in which feels very almost instinctive and good it feels good to put people down it feels good to have these hierarchies and to and to be able to elevate yourself by feeling like, well, at least there are people beneath me and I can write those people off and not have to spend empathy on them. For, right. for some reason, that apparently appeals to human beings and we do it all the time in many, many different areas of life. But it's whenever you hear somebody say, I'm just concerned for your health, it's a lie. And they may even be lying to themselves. They may be in bad faith, right. but it, it's oppression. It's, right. it's not actual. If you're concerned for somebody's health, the evidence shows that shame actually does not help. Right. It does not help people eat better. It does not help people exercise. And in fact, it scares people away from going to the doctor, from leaving the house, from doing all the things they need to do to actually be healthy members of society. Right. It doesn't work. And it's wrong. Yes. Lack of shame. That's what we're all about. We're shameless. <laughs> exactly. Um, okay. So, um, so it's one thing to talk about it in theory and, and, and make these very salient points and, and be like, yeah, so that's, you know, I agree with that too. But then when it happens in practice, it can be such a sensitive issue, especially if you're on the receiving end of, of any kind of shame. How, do you have any advice for somebody, how they might be able to respond? I mean, it, it, every case is different, but I, I'm, I'm just trying to think of like tools that could be put mm-hmm. into the toolbox of somebody who gets who unfortunately is on the receiving end of these kinds of things in like day-to-day conversations. Sure, sure. It, it really depends on a person's situation. So, I mean, sometimes people experience shame because they are actually in danger of being treated in a way that is, you know, harmful to them yeah. physically, maybe even. Like if somebody's going to be ostracized by their family or whatever. It To me, the bottom line is you need to protect yourself in some way yeah. if you can. So if there's some way you need to protect yourself, sometimes hiding is the best way to do that. Sometimes being non-confrontational is the best way to do that. 
However, if you're not in a position where it's actually going to harm you in some tangible way, the only way that I know of to kind of push back against shame is to to act more overtly <laughs> in response to it. Um, when people say that fat people shouldn't be seen or they imply that fat people shouldn't be seen and shouldn't be in public and shouldn't be in gyms, like, screw that. Go out. Go outside. Wear clothes you've like. Go to the gym. Go do whatever it is that you really want to do. Um, it's hard, but it gets easier after a while. Mm -hmm. And it's unfair that we should be tasked with doing this work, but unfortunately no one's going to do it for us at this point. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that's my only advice is to protect yourself first and push back if you can. Nice. Resistance. Very good. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about health at every size? Look what your philosophy is around that and how you put that into practice as a dietitian? Sure, yeah. So... I, there, there seems to be, I, there might be a slight branding problem with the term health at every size that I, I kind of want to address first, which is a lot of people hear the term health at every size and assume that what we're saying is everybody at every size is already healthy, um, or every single person could be healthy at any given size. And right. that's not necessarily true. Mm -hmm. There are health risks associated with weight. Um, I accept the science on that. I recognize that. What health at every size is, it's basically an alternative treatment for those health risks. Every person at every weight has a different risk profile, we'll say. Every person with a different skin color, for that matter, has a different risk profile for skin cancer and things like that. People of different heights have different risk profiles. So people of varying weights have different risk profiles as well. Thinner people might be more at risk for osteoporosis. Heavier people might be more at risk for, say, type 2 diabetes, things like that. So we recognize those risk profiles exist. Health at every size is an alternative to dieting, which means you might be able to address your own personal health risks and risk profile without focusing on weight loss or making weight loss the sole treatment through which you funnel all of that effort. Um, so health at every size means how's your eating? If, if you feel like there could be improvements made there, maybe you could look into figuring out what foods make you feel better and which foods make your, say, your blood work come back better from the doctor. Uh, and, and those foods are going to be a little bit different for every person. But for a lot of people, it's a good idea to eat food groups and eat fruits and vegetables and make sure that you're getting plenty of protein and all those kinds of things mm -hmm. and get plenty of fiber. Um, it's also involves like exercising. So what are ways you can move your body that feel good and also improve your health and improve your functioning? Not necessarily punitive ways that are about like shaping your abs or like carving your body into this perfect shape, but what helps you to feel and function better? and what reduces your risk in the long term. There's lots of things you can do for that. Mm -hmm. Cardiovascular exercise reduces everybody's cardiovascular risk, regardless of their weight. Mm -hmm. And in fact, a lot of the research on fit and fatness has focused around cardiovascular exercise and cardiovascular fitness, which is actually the true definition of fitness, not this weird idea that a fit person looks a certain way. Mm -hmm. It's more like a fit person has a certain cardiorespiratory efficiency. And people of all sizes can build that. Um, and health at every size, aside from the eating and the exercise, it's also about self-acceptance, learning how to like yourself, learning how to be sort of mentally and emotionally healthy, and also how to engage in the world in a way that helps to reduce oppression, um, both internally and externally. Jenna Ray Yurksa is an Anishinaabeg woman from the Treaty 3 territory. She came by to talk to me about rice, nationhood, and tradition. I'll let her introduce herself. I am Anishinaabeg, and I'm from the Treaty 3 territory. My community is Kuchiching First Nation. 
And um, when it comes to talking about manomen, or what is commonly referred to as wild rice, it is very sacred to Anishinaabeg people. Um, and how that all intersects with colonial land claims disputes and uh, acts of Anishinaabeg governance and assertions of nationhood is, well, um, I kind of always grew up around Manomen, which isn't uncommon for Anishinaabeg people because it is our sacred food. 2009, there was an expiration of a 99-year lease um, for what has been called Pithers Point Park, but what our people call Neoshing, meaning the point. And in 1999, or sorry, 2009, the, the expiration of the lease was up. And so I grew up as a young girl always hearing stories that Neoshing was Anishinaabeg land, that it, it, we had an unjust lease for 99 years, and then that the expiration was coming. So, you know, if I grew up hearing those stories, I know a lot of Anishinaabeg in our area also heard those stories. And it was a date that was heavily anticipated by our people. So, you know, but what happened when that lease expired was the town continued to basically justify the theft of our land and dispossessing Anishinaabeg from our lands by stating that it was still their land. And so what happened at that point was our communities, four of our communities in particular, um, got into, uh, entered into the land, land claims process to try to have Neoshing put back into Anishinaabeg possession. And I guess, you know, I'm, I'm kind of getting into more of the history, the colonial history here, but for me, what I have learned about Manomen um, is that it is not only our sacred food as Anishinaabeg people, but the traditional harvesting process of Manomen is also one of the ways that we enact governance with each other. And so historically, Neoshing, the point, which is the land in dispute, which has become a um, recreational area for the town, historically that land, as well as Manomen, has always brought Anishinaabeg people together. And so at the time I was a master's student at the University of Victoria in the Indigenous Governance Program. And I was in the process of completing my uh, research project, my com community governance research project. And I wanted to try to help mobilize our communities to, I guess, have our bodies back out on the land and engaging in land-based learning, i.e. harvesting manomen the way we always did to strengthen our relationships and our responsibilities to each other, to the land, to Manomen, um, to hopefully revitalize this resurgence of governance. Right, right. And you, you speak about roasting the Manomen at the point um, as a strong political act that of resistance that embodies um, 
Anishinaabeg governance. So how how is the the actual act of roasting rice at a, in a particular part of land? How is that um, political a political act of resistance? Hmm. It's a big question, but I, you know, when I think about Manoman, it's it's complex, and um, through colonial processes, it has really become depoliticized, mm-hmm. where you know it's seen as our food which it is, but the harvesting process of Manoman, like Manoman really carries Anishinaabeg philosophies and governance. And when we are, you know, harvesting Manoman, we are reconnecting with the land. We are reconnecting with each other. We are learning to work with each other. We are being self-sustaining because it is part of our Anishinaabeg economy that respects our philosophies and worldviews and where we come from. And, and in that sense, it is an act of resistance. And so you said that there is still ongoing land disputes right now. How did the, the people, the, what's it called, printers? Pithers Point Park. Pithers Point Park. Which the, I need to mention, though, um, that the town did, um, I think, remove that name. Oh. Because Pither right. was the Indian agent. Oh, right. That surrendered the land. Right, okay. So how did the, the people who are not part of your communities uh, react to this roasting of the rice? The point, like, is there any resistance on their part? Did they understand that it's important? Like, does, is there ever any um, conflict? No, actually, um, it was funny when the, the first year that we were organizing this, um, I didn't, you know, I didn't think about the potential for resistance. Mm-hmm. It didn't even cross my mind because I was so focused on what we were doing. Do you mean the potential of resistance from the other people in the town or do you Perhaps, mean? Yes. Right. Okay. Yes. And, um, you know, it wasn't until I talked with my great aunt and one of my great uncles that the day of they mentioned. Um, but, you know, the the day went really, really well. So can you take me through about how uh, Manoman is harvested and prepared? Like, for example, I, for one was, I was really fascinated that rice could grow in a place with such cold temperatures. I mean, it's it seems like I, don't, I, I would wager that not a lot of people even though it's possible. So what is what uh, does it entail to grow and harvest and prepare? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so... <laughs> so, um, you know, in my area in particular, um, where my community is, it doesn't grow in abundance, and there's reasons for that. It's, okay. um, you know, um, through colonial processes, there has been a dam... That has impacted water levels. I see. So it used to grow quite a lot, and now it grows not so much? Not so much. All right, because of these things. All right. So we've had to be creative um, with that, like in our area. So what we do is um, we go to um, Wabagoon, Mm -hmm. Wabagoon Lake, Mm -hmm. and uh, get Manoman from the Anishinaabeg over there. Uh, Okay. Where it grows grows a lot. Mm -hmm. And so what we do is, is they get the rice off the lake, Right. And 
you know, it, it's put in bags and right, we trans- because rice grows in the water, right? Is that how? Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And then we transport it back and then we, um, well, my grandfather, you know, I, I need to mention this. My, I, I am such a baby when it comes to learning about Monoman. I am so in the pre, like early, early stages mm-hmm. of my learning and, um, everything that I do know is because of my grandparents. You know, my grandfather, um, I always tease him. His name is Willie Yerksa, and uh, he's a modern-day rice chief. Mm-hmm. Um, he always teases me, too. Like, he's proud that I'm on this journey because he says I'm taking back my role, mm-hmm. <laughs> which he's kept kept alive for me, and I'm really proud of him. But, um, you know, my grandfather... He cares for the rice. Um, he puts it out on tarp. He waters it. Um, you know, make make sure that it doesn't dry out too much. All before we roast it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, back in the day, they used to dance on manomen. Mm-hmm. Like I, I remember, um, used to stop us to get us to dance on it. And um, what does that do? Well, that actually removes the husk. Oh, I see. Fascinating. And you say there were holes, holes were dug and the rice was put in and you would dance on it to remove the husks, I guess. Is this before you roast it? Is it before we roast it? Yeah. Do you dance on it before it gets roasted or is that after? We roast it first. Oh, I see. Yeah. And then, and then you dance on it to remove the husks. Then you winnow it. Yeah. There's, there's (laughs) lots Lots of steps, but, but it's, yeah. And, um, you know, Back home, like, we have fall harvests mm-hmm. that we do, and, um, you know, we look at m- more of the traditional ways that our ancestors have processed manomen, harvested it, and um, carry on with those practices. And then also we do it differently. Like, now we have a machine to help us right. rather than dance on it. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. Right. Okay. Um and what are some of your favorite traditional dishes that you make with it? <laughs> oh, you know, to be quite honest, I really love eating it, just boiling it with a little bit of butter and a little bit of salt. Right. I Is love that. Mm, okay. But my mother makes a mean wild rice casserole dish, <laughs> and so does my husband. Okay. He puts some almonds in there and cranberries. And, Very good. Yes. Um, can you tell me a little bit about how uh, roasting manomen, how it affects um, Anishinaabeg teens in your community? Like, how do they react to roasting at the point? Do they partake? Like, what do you? Mm-hmm. What is your sense of, of uh, their place in this right now? Oh, I think that you know the the teenagers and people that are younger than the teenagers, they have a really, really important uh, role to play when it comes to harvesting manomen because, you know, someday they're going to be the ones that carry on. You know, my great uncle talks about it being a way of life, carry on this way of life and uh, this way of governance. And um, they actually, you know, there's all different ages that come out to roast spinomen. Nice. And um, you know, some of the younger 
men like they bring out their big drum and uh you know they sing songs there the first year they came out and they sang and you know you have really really young little ones out there roasting monomen and that makes me really happy to see because to them roasting monomen is just going to be a normal part of life like my niece i have a niece that is 8 years old and she knows like every year around august and september she knows that that's what we do that we roast rice it's becoming a normal part of her lived existence mm-hmm. which is really good anishinaabeg restoration right right mhm um in your paper you quote um a source is saying, quote, when we as Indigenous peoples can feed ourselves, then we have freedom. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? That's, uh, yes, I know that, I know that source. That is uh, <laughs> Dr. Tayage Alfred. Right. And he was my community supervisor. Um, and, yeah, that he, he mentioned that one day when we were in class. That's what he talked about. Um I can't speak for him but why I quoted him on that is because he also talks about in Wasase about you know how you engage in the struggle is going to determine who you're going to become when the battle's over and you know this goes back to the politics of recognition where you know right now our communities are in a land claims dispute and i think that there's a big problem if collectively as anishinaabeg people we believe that the only way to assert our governance and our nationhood is in the confines of a colonial courtroom and so you know i have dreams about there being a monomen movement because when you think about monomen and what it means to anishinaabeg people it's in our sacred stories it's in our prophecies we've never signed a treaty with the colonial state without negotiating to harvest monomen freely and so to me the process of harvesting monomen reveals really unique aspects of anishinaabeg governance and and again it's self-sustaining it's the anishinaabeg economy that that coincides with who we are and that's why i i love when he says that right i can see why yeah okay ties it up well that's it for the first one hope you liked it I want to thank my three guests, Pedro France, Michelle Allison, and Jenna Ray Yerksa. You can find Michelle at fatnutritionist.com or at fatnutritionist on Twitter. Our theme song is by the Rad Pins and Needles, an all-girl band that met at Girls Rock Camp. Check them out at pinsandneedles.bandcamp.com. And they just put out an awesome EP for $5. Please buy it, you won't be sorry. Um, you can check us out at shamelessmag.com or at shamelessmag on Twitter. And you can find me, Julia Delarentis Johnson, at Julia Del J on Twitter too. And I'd love to hear from you. 
Until next time, stay shameless. <laughs>